All right, folks, it is officially November. It is uh, the holiday season coming up on the end of the year. And you know what that means. That means that the government is going to drop many, many publications of things they've been working on all year before they go on vacation, which means it's the busiest time of year for us having to dig through and sift through things like updated NIST uh, revisions and rulemaking and policy memos and all the stuff that they, all the stuff that all the good girls and boys get for the holidays from, from the Department of Defense and other federal agencies already ticking up. There's all sorts of stuff going on these days. But uh, here at the beginning of November, we are quickly approaching the time that NIST indicated uh, they were planning on publishing the next drafts of SP 8171 revision three and the corresponding revision to SP 800-171A. So I think in fitting with that uh, pending event, today we're gonna talk about some of the questions that we have ahead of those published revisions. Historically, Jacob, for us, November has been a, a month full of excitement all the time, like at least for the past couple of years, right? November, we get CMMC 2.0 a couple of years mm -hmm. back. And then it looks like the stars are aligning the same way again. October was overrated. So we didn't get a CMMC rule in October. And now we're saying with 30, 30 days that we're going to get the CMMC rule in November. But one thing that we can count on is the freight train that NIST has rolling with its revisions. And I love that they post on LinkedIn, like Ron Ross posts up the little freight train, train keeps on trucking along. Yeah. And as intended, NIST says we're delivering on this date or we're delivering about this time and right on money, right on the money, whatever yeah. we're expecting from NIST comes. And, and that's very refreshing for me um, yeah. because you can actually depend on that. that. But it looks like uh, November is shaping up to be uh, pretty exciting for us. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, not for you because you don't like Thanksgiving. Whole different story for a different <laughs> well, time. But... It's not a problem because we're going to have hundreds of pages of rules to read and new NIST revisions and all kinds of stuff. So you know you don't even have to worry about. It. If you want to take uh, if you want to take a holiday, you got to take a holiday in August because that's when nothing happens in DC right before the holidays is when they drop all their stuff. However, like you were saying, NIST is very very good about meeting their estimated timelines for publication. They've been very good in the past, and as we've seen in the past, they try to sometimes even accelerate when they're going to put their publications out if there are situations like government shutdowns. And lo and behold, the continuing resolution as of uh, this conversation expires on November 17th, which would trigger potentially a government shutdown. And so I am very, very confident that NIST is going to release their revisions, uh, the next draft of their revisions uh, before November 17th, which is why we're talking about it today. Um, Okay, what if we so, get both in the same week? Uh, both re the revision and the CMMC rule? Yeah, let it, would your a, brain explode? Like, would your body explode, distinct, dude? That is a distinct possibility. So buy stock in Red Bull, everybody. And uh, if, <laughs> it's going to be... It's get, this is what we've been training for. This is what we've been training for. Do you have, like, an inflatable mattress and an emergency kit in your you office? Got a whole so dojo, I got a whole dojo set up. You know, we got a whole thing. Uh, it's 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 a whole it's a whole endeavor. It, uh, it's a realistic possibility. I'm not just throwing darts here. Like, no, if you it think is about absolutely it. it is absolutely a realistic possibility that you get the next drafts of the NIST revisions and the CMMC rule in combination with whatever other X factor memo policy rule update thing that we don't even know about uh, that could come around the corner. Right? SEC's mm -hmm. out there going crazy. 
Uh, they're, they're revising guidance for FedRAMP. I mean, everybody's doing everything before the holidays. Anyways, let's get right into it. So we've got seven things. Conveniently enough, we've got seven things that we wanted to uh, remind people of, sort of open questions uh, headed into the next set of revisions to sort of frame the things that we expect to see, uh, stuff that we're not sure how NIST is going to handle uh, based on public comments, everything like that. So it's starting First to get one, sus how our list always end at seven, right? It's really like weird. I, it's really weird. I don't it's understand why we always we put it. together a list. We're like seven. Looks like a good number for every us. Time, right? like, every time. Yeah, it's right. like, it, it's really crazy. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. this one on the list. Uh, the first one on my list is what is NIST going to do about the remaining NFO controls? So for people that aren't familiar or people that need to be reminded, when NIST takes the 853 moderate baseline, they have to categorize those controls to determine which ones are relevant to protecting the confidentiality of CUI. If those controls are not relevant to protecting the confidentiality of CUI, then they don't show up in the resulting 800-171 baseline, if you will. So not everything that is in the moderate baseline of 853 shows up in the 800-171 baseline for protecting CUI confidentiality. One way, uh, famously, infamously, that NIST decided to minimize the amount of things in 800-171 was to say, okay, this stuff over here is not relevant to CUI, we're going to call those NCO controls. This stuff is relevant to CUI. We're going to call those CUI controls. This stuff is only relevant to the federal government. So we're going to call those Fed controls. And then the remaining controls, 60 some odd of those controls, were determined to be NFO or things that NIST assumed companies would do without having specific guidance uh, prescribed to do them. Things mm -hmm. like having policies and procedures, things like having SLAs and agreements uh, and assurances over your external service providers, all sorts of very critical sort of precursor things that need to happen for a security program to operate to get to the goals of uh, the requirements in 800-171. They did not specify as a requirement. They assumed that companies would be doing them. And that was a colossal mistake. It was not representative of reality on the ground. It was not a realistic assumption or set of assumptions about how companies actually operate in the supply chain. Uh, it was completely uninformed about uh, the nature of the way that security programs such that they even exist at all would actually operate in reality. It was, uh, it was a huge mistake and it put them into a really bad corner that they are now trying to get their, their way out of because they know that their assumptions were incorrect. And so if your assumptions were incorrect, the only option that you have is to put those assumptions into the 171 baseline, and that's going to dramatically increase the size of the standard and therefore increase the cost of assessment programs like CMMC. So when we got the initial draft of 171 Rev 3, they dramatically reduced the number of NFO controls, and many of them were categorized as suddenly being relevant to the protection of CUI. What do you know? Surprise, surprise. But there are still some NFO controls, a small number of them in the baseline. There are still assumptions about what companies are doing. And so um, there was still feedback in the public comments, and they sort of indicated this in their summary documents um, uh, in response to public comments that they were going to revisit 
having NFOs at all in Rev3. So the big question is, will they have NFOs? Will they get rid of them entirely? Will they keep some small number? Was the assignment of NFO controls as relevant to CUI something they're going to stick with? Will they recategorize them? What are they going to do with this set of assumptions from Rev2 in this upcoming final draft of Rev3? One of the greatest things about having a constantly revi uh, revised document, Jacob, is that when you realize that you've made, made a mistake, you can correct it, right? And then hopefully everybody goes with it. And one of the funniest things that we've seen in the comments for Rev3 is that people are like, bring back NFOs. Wait, do you want NFOs? Do you not want NFOs? Like the, the undecided. You're never going to please everybody. Um, yeah. uh, but the fact is, is that the, it was a gross misrepresentation of what people were absorbing, right? The, the organizations that this was applied to, uh, NIST automatically assumed that they were doing all of these and, things and, and realized fair, it wasn't being it done. Wasn't, it wasn't just NIST, right? The original 800-171 up until the point that it exists today is a collaborative document that was authored by NIST, mm -hmm. NARA, and the DOD. So it was not just, you know, it wasn't just Ron Ross going crazy here and doing his own thing. It was a collaborative conversation amongst many stakeholders uh, responsible for this program, and they all collectively agreed that this was uh, the best way to approach it. We've described it in the past. The current way that 171 is written is great if you already have a bunch of resources and a fully risk-informed uh, cybersecurity program because there's not a right. lot of stuff prescribed that you have to do. They're just outcomes. They're just goals that are prescribed uh, for your program to meet. How you meet them is up to you. That's a problem for companies that aren't resourced, that don't have those programs that need to comply with these requirements, because it's essentially like writing a cookbook and just having pictures of the, the outcome, not including the recipes, right? And this has been the big debate back and forth is, well, should the government provide the recipes? Will the government provide recipes? Is that their job? Do they even know how to do it? What is what should a security standard even look like, right? Should this security standard for a very narrow goal of protecting CUI confidentiality somehow stand in as a step-by-step -step guide for establishing an overall security program, right? And so it's this sort of more fundamental debate. And I find it very interesting to watch what they do with those NFO categories, because the way that those NFO categories go sort of indicates the way that the government is thinking about what should the standard do? Like, how much help is the government going to give anybody? Yeah, so the DOD incorrectly assumed twice, right? Because they assumed once when they were in the collaborative effort with NIST, creating the actual standard and contributing to it. And then again, when they adopted the standard as a part of DFAR 7012, right? And, and so like- Well, we, you know, this is the thing, right? Is it's, and this is, you know, we don't want to get too far off track here, but this is the sort of one of the fundamental debates is if- the assumption by the government, the DOD, everybody is that you have a security program in place and these are the goals that your program needs to be able to meet, then is their position that you have to have a program when you're bidding on contracts or is their position you don't have to have anything and the standard will teach you how to establish it, right? Now, as we talked about before, it's a longer conversation. At no point in the history of NIST standards, have they ever represented a step-by-step -step guide for establishing a security program? They've never done that, right? And so 
as 853 has evolved over time and more and more details and information have been removed in the name of flexibility, and then you derive a very narrow standard from that document that doesn't have a lot of information in it anymore, then you're even further away from the ability to say, here's how you create a program. And so, you know, what does 171 represent philosophically, right? Does it represent an on-ramp to starting a security program? Does it represent the outcomes that a security program ought to be able to meet? Uh, and so watching how they categorize those NFO controls is very important. One small note on that uh, NFO control issue, like they said in their summary of public comments on the initial draft of Rev3, there was almost no public comments, even though they received like 1,700 some odd public comments. There was almost no comment on the categorization changes of the controls in 853. Is it CUI relevant? Is it not CUI relevant? Is it NFO? Is it Fed? Is it this? Is it that? And like we talked about at CS2 Denver, that initial decision is the one that has the most leverage over what 171 looks like, what 171A therefore looks like, and then what CNMC therefore looks and feels and costs in the end. Because if something is categorized as relevant, it is going to show up in some way in 171, 171A, and therefore CMMC. If it's categorized as not relevant, it's not in the baseline. And you've got this weird NFO limbo space where it's like, well, they're not, not relevant, but they're not specified either. So even though they're not in 171, you're still going to get asked about them and blah, blah, blah. So I'm very interested to see, you know, do they eliminate it entirely? Do they bring it back? Do they keep a little bit of it? It's a mess. So I'm very interested I, to see what they do. I, I think as it revises, as it makes sense, it, it obviously jumps in and eliminates and we, we get rid of things that are not necessary. Right? Yeah, my prediction is that that's that's yeah, my prediction is they get rid of NFO categorization entirely because it's just it's just yeah. a mess. It's just a mess. I hope they do. Okay, uh, second big question: Will the organizationally defined parameters be reduced and or eliminated entirely? So, organizationally defined parameters are variables in the text of a control that need to be defined uh, as part of the context of the control environment that you are implementing these controls inside of. So. An organizationally defined parameter needs a value, right? And this might be uh, how often are you conducting backups? Every night, every week, every month, every year? How often are you conducting risk assessments? Every quarter, every six months, every, every month? How often are you doing X? How often do you require Y? You have to specify or define these values for the control to have any meaning. And the ODP variable, this organizationally defined parameter variable, has been a fundamental part of the way NIST controls are written for the last 20 years, for the entire history of NIST controls. They've always had these parameter values because <clears throat> these controls are supposed to be adopted across multiple different federal and non-federal environments, all different kinds of architectures and technologies. There's no way for them to be able to specify specific values for controls and have it be useful for everybody. So they have to have these open-ended variables, hence their emphasis on flexibility of NIST controls, mm -hmm. right? The NIST controls are like, it's like a series of security control uh, mad libs, right? You have to define the variables in order to give it meaning. And then what variables you define are what you're assessing against. That's what you're trying to verify. You really are doing things every night, every week, every quarter, or whatever the definition is. So when 
the initial draft of Rev3 came out, everybody's head exploded because all of a sudden in the text of the controls, you've got these organizationally defined parameters and people went, whoa, 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 what is that? What are you doing? What the heck is an ODP? Who defines an ODP? Why are they here? This is dumb. I don't like it. The vast majority of public comments on the initial draft were all about ODPs, how dumb they were, how much they stink, and how much people didn't like them, and why NIST should get rid of them. I find this to be absolutely fascinating because ODPs exist in 171 as it is written today. Now, they're not formatted in a 171 control when you just read 171A, but if you open up one, or if in 171, but if you open up 171A, the first line of every single assessment procedure, the first step says, define a thing, specify a thing, define a value, specify a parameter, define this, specify this, because you can't verify the other steps of the assessment procedure unless you know what you're looking for. And so, when people turn around and they comment on the initial draft and they say, this is new, I don't know what this is, what are we supposed to do? That is all the evidence you need that most people don't know what 171A is, they don't know what it's asking for, and they don't know how to use it, which then brings about a whole other litany of issues, like how did you calculate a score to upload to SPRS if you didn't accurately use 171A, and on and on and on. So my point here is, Having the ODPs in the formatting of 171 is not a new thing. Those ODPs still exist in 171A, but there was a very big backlash in the comments. So the big question is, will NIST use something like the current formatting where they're hidden away in 171A? Will they stick with the initial draft formatting where they make them much more obvious as things that need to be dealt with? You know, what will they decide to do stylistically here? So what... 171 is purely tailored from 53. So if you go to the base control that it's tailored from and you look at it, if there's an ODP existent there, you look and you see the same format now in Rev3. Correct. Right? Yeah. It's like it's a one making, for one. We, yeah. we complain all the time about the standards, standardization. I can't talk today. No, you got reason. it. You nailed it. I can't talk period all the time. We're, we're in the beignets again. Stand, but, standard. Yeah. Standard. <laughs> standard. <laughs> Okay. Listen, I'm good for one an episode, okay? Oh, but you know, man. like we, we talk about the standardization of these requirements of from coming from it. And this is exactly what we're seeing. What they did was originally when when 50 when they tailored the control out of 853 baseline, right? And, and it had an organizationally defined parameter in it. They just took and turned that into its own determination statement or assessment objective, and it was very vague. Wherein in the ODP, it may be something is giving the open-ended uh, idea of somebody to go through and say, you need to conduct a risk assessment at least every quarter, right? And right. that would be that would be what the ODP was defined as in 53. Then in 171, it just needs to be defined. And then they're it's, like, defined this, how, right? It's and this, then now they're getting yeah. to that point. It's just more granularity it's, to it. It's this, it's this good, I, I hate the way that the formatting of 171 disguises what is actually required by the control. What ends up happening is, People will look at the single sentence format of a security requirement in 171, and then they'll turn around and see the multi-step verification procedure in 171A, and they'll go, oh, 171A is the problem because it's expanding what is required in 171, and that's not true. 171 is masking incorrectly what is actually required to know if a requirement is implemented. And so you could take the 
171 formatting to its logical extreme and just make them a single word instead of, you know, apply MFA for privileged and non-privileged accounts, so on and so forth. You could just say mm -hmm. MFA, encryption, segmentation, least privilege. Just how about we just make all the requirements single words, right? Just saying MFA, how do you know MFA is happening? There are things that you have to verify. There's a multi-step procedure you're going to have to go through to verify that MFA is happening. So the formatting in 171 as it exists up through Rev2 is completely arbitrary. The actual level of work, as we've said many, many times, is contained in 171A. Now that they've aligned the formatting of 171 directly with its source material in 53, everybody goes, whoa, whoa, I'm not so sure about this. What's all this extra stuff? Which just gets back to that whole point where, in my personal opinion, having 171 and 171A as separate documents is very, very unhelpful because you you constantly have this big surprise that happens and you're trying to sync the formattings. It's just a huge mess. Just make them the same document like the CMMC assessment guide does so that everybody can see what the requirement is and they can see what the verification steps are. Yeah, they've always existed. You said it, right? But what the thing is and where they can get potentially scary and you touched on it is the fact that if somebody, if an organization adopts the 171 standard and the organizationally defined parameters are established for them and that doesn't match up with other requirements, right? And then there's this whole mix up of, is this good enough or is that good enough? Instead of letting the, the most strongest value supersede whatever value it is there, saying yeah. that you meet it, at least at the, at the minimum baseline. And so I think that that's where a lot of the gripe, and we saw it within the comments um, on, on the public draft was that like, if this isn't done correctly, it can get ugly, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So very interested to see what they do there. I think that they will probably cave the public comments and reduce the number of ODPs in 171. And it won't matter because the number of things you have to define and specify in 171A will increase. So who cares what the formatting mm -hmm. looks like in 171? It's totally arbitrary. Anyways. Okay. So moving on here. Uh, my next question here is, Will NIST sync the revision numbers? This is kind of a minor question. Will NIST sync the revision numbers between 171 and 171A? Currently, we're on 171 Rev 2 and we're on 171A, no revision. We're moving into 171 revision 3. So will we get 171A revision 1 or will we get 171A revision 3 to match? Now, this has happened before in the history of 853 revisions where we had multiple revisions of 853 and then fewer revisions of 800 of 853a and when 53 uh when 53 rev 5 came out they synced up 53a to be rev 5 even though there haven't been five revisions they synced the numbers up for uh you know to, to keep everything uniform i feel like that's what they're going to do here but just so everybody's aware you know it's going to go 171 rev 3 and likely 171a rev 3 even though this mm -hmm. is the first revision to 171A in its history. This would fit with what they've done in the past. Uh, sort of a minor detail, but it's definitely something I'm excited for because I the last thing I want to do is say 171 Rev 2, 171A Rev 1, 171 Rev 3. It's very confusing. Uh, it'll be a lot easier if they just sync those Rev numbers together. Getting back to that standardization, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Just, just make the numbers match for us, please. Yeah, hopefully I, I they do. I feel like they will. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. It'll make things uh, less clunky. Okay, so next question here, 
will NIST restructure the discussion sections of the requirements? This was something that came up in the public comments quite a bit. This is something that NIST addressed in their summary of public comments. People don't like the fact that the discussion sections of the requirements include information about other controls, other requirements, other concepts that might be fundamentally related to that mm -hmm. requirement. And so people said, just talk about the requirement in the discussion section of that requirement. And I can see the reason why that would be useful. My concern here is that um, it's going to cause the illusion that the requirements are all individually oriented, that they're all islands in and of themselves. And that you know, 171 also already does a poor job of indicating how the controls are related to each other compared to 853 which doesn't do it as much as it used to. And now if you take the discussion sections and you isolate them unto themselves for somebody that's looking at the standard and trying to, you know, learn about how these things are supposed to work or learn about how to implement them together or sequence them in a way that makes sense. If the if the discussion sections don't indicate that overlap and the requirements don't indicate that overlap and the appendices don't indicate that overlap, then you're not going to see the overlaps. And I feel like that will be less helpful, even though it might be more efficient to read. So I feel like NIST is going to mess with the discussion sections, but I'm not sure that that's the right move. Do you remember that um, video that you referenced at Summit Up Live uh, where they were telling the kids to make the peanut butter sandwich yeah. and they're like melting down because the yeah, directions the weren't thorough challenge. and clear? Yeah. So like, I feel like that that's what it would turn 171 into if we went and we individualized those control the practices, right? In the discussion, it would turn into the peanut butter challenge, right? Because it would be, think about it. Think about MFA, implementing MFA, it has to have something to do with access control, right? And, right. and it has things to play in access control. But if we're individualizing that control, then it's just implementing MFA, but what are you implementing on? Yeah. Like, how does it tie in? But if you talk in the discussion, it's identifying users, whatever it may be, right? Yeah. And, and so it's not plausible. Like, that was one of the arguments in the discussion sections to restructure. The other one, and NIST won't do this, we, we know this, is that they were asking for implementation instructions, right? right. Like, that, that's what right. some of the comments were like, hey, can you please tell me how to do this? No, I can't because each individual, and NIST says this, this is the line, right? Each system is unique in its own way. Right. And you they won't. They never have. Yeah. They never have talked. We about just create the implementation. standard. Right. They they never have talked about specific implementation, and they never will. They're just like, hey, mm -hmm. if you want to do business with us, you got to bake a cake. And you're like, I don't know how to bake, and they're like, I don't know what to tell you. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's 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 the you got to be this high to ride the ride. You got to be able to bake the cake. You have to be able to do cost accounting, whatever the requirement is. We just mm -hmm. write. We just describe the cake, right? We don't actually tell you how to bake it, which sort of gets back to that more fundamental debate about what role, you know, NIST standards ought to play. And I think that the industrial base and the federal contracting base are um, are sort of coming to grips with the fact that the NIST standards have never done the things that they want it to do. And they're very unlikely to somehow have a sea change between now and the time CMMC assessments start in the nature of those, uh, of it's, those. Just, it's the importance of purview. It's just not in their purview. It's not well, what they do. You know what this I mean? Gets back to, this gets back to things that Stacey Boschanek and DOD have said, uh, you know, at previous CS2s and other conference events where, you know, people have routinely said, give us implementation guidance. And the DOD was like, we will never give you specific implementation guidance. 
One, because they don't know how to do the implementation. That's not their job. Second, they're never going to give specific implementation guidance for legal reasons. And two, yeah. or and three, the environments are too varied. They're too, they're too, you know, they're too different across the the contracting base. Like they, there's no way they can give specific implementation guides. They give high level system outcomes. They give high level requirements that you need to meet. And then it's up to you to engineer the solution, which is obviously a problem when you have companies that don't have the resources or the know-how to engineer the solutions to meet that requirement. This got covered in the GAO report that came out in 2021, where they said industry constantly wants implementation guidance. The government doesn't give implementation guidance. It comes out in the public comments to NIST, give us implementation guidance. And NIST says, we don't give you implementation guidance. And I'm sure it will come out in the public comments on CMMC where people will say, we need implementation guidance. And they're going to go, that isn't even relevant to this rule. You got to talk to somebody else, right? And it's just, it's you just go around and around and around, which we're going to get to out of scope uh, uh, comments and topics here in a minute. So, okay. okay. So moving on, uh, the next question here is, you know, how many requirements and determination statements will there even be in the uh, final draft of 171 and uh, 171A here? So very quickly, uh, NIST 853 Rev 4, is the one that is used to derive the current version of 800-171 revision 2. There are 262 controls in the moderate baseline of 853 Rev4. So we need to go through those 262 controls and determine which ones are relevant to CUI, which ones are not relevant to CUI. This gets mm -hmm. back to that NFO problem we talked about earlier. So uh, according to the way that you know NIST did their accounting of these controls, we ended up with 110 requirements that represent the relevant portion of those 262 controls in the moderate baseline. And that translates to 320 determination statements, sometimes called assessment objectives, in 800-171A. So the portion of those 262 controls in 853 end up, at the end of the day, being 320 questions that need to be answered to, to provide some assurance that those requirements have been implemented. Now, whether mm -hmm. they structure those as 110, whether they structure those as 126 or 15 words, doesn't really matter. It's the number of determination statements, the number of questions in an assessment that really matters to people at the end of the day. So now we've switched from 853 Rev 4 to 853 Rev 5, which is the catalyst for needing to revise derivative standards like 800 now we have 287 controls that are in the moderate baseline rather than 262, which as we've talked about at CS2 Huntsville and CS2 Denver and many times on the podcast, how will NIST change their categorization decisions for the existing 262, if at all? How will they categorize the delta of new controls above that 262 in the new revision of uh, 853 Rev 5? Now, uh, I think... <laughs> very uh, to the annoyance of many the initial draft of 171 uh still sticks with 110 requirements even though there is it represents many more things and therefore has many more determination statements so if you go through the number of line items in 800 rev3 the initial draft and then you count up how many determination statements that corresponds to in 53a it's like 439 instead of 320 it's a it's a 37% increase in the number of questions that you need to ask to verify that your controls are implemented, but they're still represented as 
110 requirements, which gets back to that point about the representation of requirements in 171 is completely arbitrary. The part that matters is the number of questions that show up in 171A. So something to keep in mind. I think that they're probably going to do it. I think they're probably going to keep it 110, but you're going to have many more questions in 171A. And so if you don't know what 171A is, if you don't know that that's the part that's the real center of gravity, yeah, you might be caught off guard by how much of an increase there actually is under the hood. It, it really is some profit magic, right? Coming coming from the profits of Phil Terry and Ross, because what happened was, is that you added three domains uh, of practices, right? Yep. To, to, to the fold. And you still have 110. Some people say 109. Yep. Remember that whole. Yeah. I mean, there was a, yeah. 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 You, you withdrew but a bunch of controls. You added. You repurposed them. You, well, no, you just repurposed yeah. them. A lot of them were incorporated yeah. into things where it made sense and totally made sense right. there. Right. But it's just so crazy how you're like, man, it's so much bigger. Wait, there's still 110. Well, this is the reason why. Because yeah. there was a lot of parsing out in there. So they incorporated a lot of more stuff into that. But then they they married things together. So it made sense and it wasn't all broken up and jumped. And, so. and I, personally, I hate it. I hate it. Like anytime, anytime a control says something, something and something, something, stop. They need to be yeah. two separate things. Anytime a determination statement says verify this and this and this, stop. They need to be separate steps, right? Stop using conjunctions, NIST, please. Stop stringing different requirements together, thinking that that's going to make it easier. Because when you combine different requirements together and represent that in 800-171, you are masking the amount of questions that need to be asked in 171A. And when you mm -hmm. have multi-part questions in 171A, then you have many things that could cause you to fail a single step, right? So they all need to be broken out. If you have multiple things that you want to verify, need to be multiple steps for each one of them. Now that makes it longer and that makes it have more questions, right? But there isn't any mystery about what needs to be asked. And this is why the formatting differences between 53 and 171 to me are not helpful because if out of 287 controls, 150 of them are relevant to CUI, then 150 requirements go into 800-171, period, right. right? There's no, oh, well, it's 150 controls an X number of determination statements in 53 and 53A, but it's 110 in uh, 800-171, right? It's an illusion and it is not helpful. We've, it we've, has learned, to this. Be, we've learned this in the history of 171, like this it's, attempt to make it easier just backfires. The, the standardization, the reason why is because the attempt to make it easier is to make it easier for people that don't speak NISTs, right? To go through and interpret it, right? right. So the audience that it's intended for can ingest it. The problem is, is that it's still not working and it's still more confusing. Yeah. They're getting professionals now and the professionals are translating twice, right? Correct. And, and so like, like it's just the standardization, right? I, I did that one on purpose. <laughs> I did that. I definitely did that one on purpose, right? Um, but yeah, so like that, that process, I, we're seeing how much it affects in this entire thing here and, and how beneficial it can be yeah. or detrimental it can be, right? Yeah. To the absorption of the standards. Absolutely. I'm just, for NIST, just, NIST, just stop. Right. You're doing too much. Here's what you should do. Right. You've got a bunch of great source material that you've had for a really long time in a system that, you know, works, even though it's clunky. What you should do is instead of having the good idea fairy come around and have you combine requirements, you need to hire a bunch of technical writers. Right. You need to hire people who can rewrite your language in a way that is human readable to the muggle world that has to now deal with your standard. 
right? You don't have to try to combine things because it causes way more issues than it gives benefits for. Just, I really hope that they eventually, eventually, and this is what Ron Ross said, eventually that's what they're planning to do is they're planning to have a one-for-one -one representation between 53 and the corresponding controls in 171. But like we talked about, because they cut so much of that information out in the early versions of 171, they can't just go directly back to 53 because you would you would expand the size appearing you would appear to expand the size of the document by like three or four x because all of a sudden you've got all this information that you purposely left out and assumed would be there that you now have to put into the document and so it's just it's a huge mess it's a huge mess and so uh, I, I'm interested to see what they what they do there you know <laughs> but yeah of course we know that even if you don't know how 53 works, even if you don't know what the specific numbers are, there are more things in the 53 Rev 5 moderate baseline than there were in the 53 Rev 4 moderate baseline, which means there will be a non-zero number of new things in this next revision of 171. Will they represent it as 110 requirements or will they tell the truth? Anyways. My, you cracked me up with that. Nist, you're doing too much. That's, they're doing too much. My kid came home and hit me with it. That's what the kids are saying nowadays. Yeah. Daddy, no, you, Daddy you doing too much. Yeah, that's where yeah. I got it from. We're, we know what's going on. We're hip. We're hip. Anyways, yeah. uh, next question here, getting towards the end. Will NIST address the overlap, the issues, the confusion between NIST standards and the DOD's CMMC program? What? Okay, so just to remind everybody, the NIST requirements are not the CMMC program. The NIST requirements are the requirements to protect CUI in non-federal information systems. That is contractor owned and operated information systems that happen to process federal data. That's in contrast to a federal information system, which may be contractor operated, but belongs to the government essentially, right? So uh, the DOD assessment program assesses and verifies the implementation of NIST requirements to give DOD assurance that their data as it flows through the DOD supply chain has some level of protection to it, right? That's all the CMMC program is trying to do. So when NIST gets comments about the CMMC program, they are not relevant because that's not what NIST does. Just like when DOD gets public comments uh, about NIST requirements, it is not relevant to what they're doing, especially when you're talking about just the CMMC rule. Mm -hmm. Okay. So We've covered this before. We covered this in the pre-draft call for comments on a previous episode. And I like to think that in our small way, we contributed to awareness of the out-of-scope issue. And so NIST in their summary of public comments even says less than 5% of the comments received were not in scope for NIST, which is a huge improvement because many, many, the majority of the comments in the pre-draft uh, release of 171 revision three were almost entirely out of scope. They were almost entirely focused on things that NIST has no control over. And so NIST gives us a list here in their summary of public comments, which we'll have linked in the show notes here. Things that are out of scope for NIST when you're submitting your comments coming up. The current and planned requirements related to CMMC or DFARS period. Uh, defining parameter values for organizationally defined parameters, not something that NIST does. Uh, identification and marketing of CUI, not a NIST program. Uh, also not a CMMC program. That actually belongs to a different office inside the Pentagon. That belongs to the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and 
something, INS, whatever the INS acronym is, we'll link to it below. Doesn't belong to acquisition and sustainment, doesn't belong to DOD CIO, doesn't belong to NIST. And that's how you get the pointing Spider-Man meme of being like, we have an issue with these requirements. And they go, well, you got to go down the hall. And then you go down the hall and they say, this is a Wendy's. You got to go across the street. You go across the street and they say, well, that's not actually our problem. And so on and so forth and around and around they go. Something else that NIST doesn't uh, address that isn't relevant to them, flow down issues going from the DOD to prime contractors, from prime contractors to sub-tier suppliers. The issues that come up with flow down in DVAR's contract language, not NIST's wheelhouse, not NIST's problem. Something else, uh, identifying specific solutions or specific implementations for quote unquote compliance, their quotes, for compliance is not something that is relevant for NIST. So if you're asking for specific solutioning, if you're asking for specific implementation guidance, you're not gonna get it. It's not what they do. And finally, something that is not relevant to the standard is the cost of implementation. They actually have a call out in the summary of public comments where they specifically say, our job is to make the standard for minimum acceptable assurance for protecting federal data in non-federal systems if a federal agency wants to contract with companies in their supply chain and they want to flow that data, the issue of cost between those suppliers and that federal agency is between that federal agency and their suppliers. It is not the authors of the standard. The criterion that they use for selecting which of the 853 controls are relevant to protecting CUI is not cost, it is assurance. What does, the, what does the government need to have assurance over to give them some confidence that they can flow the information? If it is minimizing small business impact, if it is minimizing burden, if it is minimizing complexity, if it is minimizing cost, then you have a much, much smaller standard. That is not the standard that they use, which is why those things are not considered to be relevant. So if you're planning on submitting comments related to those things, um, don't, right? Now, there's probably a better place for you to submit those comments. Might be the CMMC rule, might be the DOD INS office, might be this, might be that. But as far as NIST is concerned, if you submit a comment related to those, they won't be able to address it. Yeah, I think it's important because all that time for comments that are not relevant to whatever the topic is, in this case, the revision of the draft, is more time that NIST has to invest in it and the longer we have to wait until we get the draft out, right? So yeah. um, anything to stop delaying the process would be greatly appreciated from everybody involved. Yeah, now I've had some people tell me, especially on LinkedIn, they're like, well, you know, I'm gonna submit comments related to things that I know are out of scope, out of principle, because I don't think it's right. And so I wanna make sure that they hear what I'm saying. And NIST even says in their summary of public comments that they appreciate the added context, that they appreciate knowing what's going on and sort of, getting a sense of how the, uh, you know, the, the world views the standards and some of the issues that come up. But when push comes to shove, uh, even if they're aware of those issues, that isn't the framework that they use for developing this derivative standard from 853. So um, just, just keep that in mind, everybody, like we did. We saw a dramatic decrease in the number of out-of-scope comments from pre-draft to initial draft. So I'm sure there will still be some in the final draft, just, just so you're aware. Uh, you know, it's a very narrow wheelhouse for what NIST is in charge of. Okay, last question that we have ahead is actually a viewer question, a viewer question submitted uh, on YouTube from user Spark. That's the best I can do. Uh, so thanks for the question. We love all the questions that people submit. 
Uh, so if you guys have other questions, let us know in the comments. We read all of them. And if they're great, then we'll include them on the show. Okay, so Ansees Fark says, can you dive into how if 171 Rev 3 could impact the final CMMC rule? It seems like all the C3PO training and such is based on 171 Rev 2. CMMC assessment guides are based on 171 Rev 2, etc. This seems like a two-step where really the DIB needs to prepare for 171 Rev 3, which is not finalized, and CMMC, which is also not finalized. And I think that is really making leadership confused and nervous, hence the hesitation on action and implementation. And I think that is a great observation, uh, ANSI's Fark. So thank you for the question and the elaboration. Yeah. So when you're making an argument for something, anything, especially with management, when it comes to IT budgets and cybersecurity, right? You want to have argument, uh, arguable evidence to, to back you up, right? You want you have your insurance claim there. And if your assurance claim is it's this standard, which is not finalized, and yeah. this requirement, which is not finalized, you're pretty much going into a knife fight with wet toilet paper. Right. Wow. Ter that's, a, that's quite the visual. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, we had to, I want to make sure that you felt it, right? Like, yeah. you're not going to win the fight unless I the toilet paper. I feel it now, out. Mr. Krabs. I mean, so, you know, our response on the comment when we got this was, you know, essentially uh, our recommendation is that. It's a best practice to familiarize yourself with 853 controls. Again, I mean, you hear, mm -hmm. hear us say this all the time because those controls in 853 are tailored down and arbitrarily represented in 171. So if you are waiting on a revision to 171, if you know what the source material in 853 says, you will never be surprised by what ends up in 171 because it is always going to be some subset of the moderate baseline, specifically some subset of the CUI relevant controls in the moderate baseline. So when you take a single line in 171 Rev 2, and suddenly it has two lines in 171 Rev 3, you look back at the 853 control, and what do you know? That control has two lines or three lines or four lines in it. And if you're familiar with those lines, then it's not a surprise to you. You don't have to wait on this NIST revision cycle, even though it's going very quickly, in order to sort of future-proof your understanding of the requirements. Now, when it comes to explaining this to leadership, makes it very, very difficult because a lot of times what people end up saying is it doesn't really matter what's going on with the CMMC rule. This is something that DOD used to be a lot better about communicating. It doesn't really matter what's going on with the CMMC rule because you already have 7012 in your contracts and mm -hmm. 7012 tells you you have to implement 800-171 Rev 2. And because people have associated the CMMC program with the requirements that need to be implemented, and because the CMMC program is not yet done out of rulemaking, then they haven't started on their requirements because they don't think the requirements are finalized. This is the implementation trap that we talk about all the time, where you, uh, if you wait on the CMMC rule to be final, to start your implementation, you're way behind the curve because most Absolutely. companies take 12, 18, 24 months without even talking about the delta of Rev3 on top of that to go from zero to assessment ready. And so you won't have enough time by the time the CMMC rule comes out to be ready for your assessment. And then a whole bunch of bad timeline backups start to happen uh, from there. Just by the numbers, that's a terrible strategy, right? You're either looking at one or two things. You are already moving towards Rev2 and you get those 320 determination statements and the, and the work that's assigned to that out of the way, right? 
And then you're, you talked about a 30% increase in, into Rev3. So if you have that stuff out of the way, then you can plan accordingly. You can start researching, seeing exactly what's tailored out, what's required, what I need to do and make a plan moving forward. And instead of having a hundred things, you're just stalling now and you have like over 400 things that you need yeah. to get done, right? Because we, we always say it's answers to a test or answers to questions. You have to answer those 420 questions no matter what, or have an answer that says that I don't need to answer this because right. I have a sick note and I can't go to gym yeah. class today. But, you know, I guess specifically to their question about how will 171 Rev 3 impact the CMMC final rule, the short answer is it won't, right? They are they are ships in the night, even though they are dependent on one another. The NIST revision cycle is independent of the CMMC rulemaking cycle. And so uh, when Rev 3, Rev, Rev 3 really has more to do with DFAR 7012 than it does with DFARS 7021, the clause that says you need to go get a CMMC certificate. You know, DFARS 7012 currently on the books right now says you have to implement the version of 800-171 that is current at the time of your contract award, essentially. When mm -hmm. you get this contract solicitation, we're talking about the version of 171 that is currently the most current revision. So the day that 171 Rev 3 goes final, which should be Q1 of 2024, uh, DFAR 7012 points everybody to Rev 3. The CMMC rule will likely go final in Q1 of 2025, at which point assessments will start to roll out. So there's all these questions like we've talked about in the past. Will DOD grant a waiver known as a class deviation for DFAR 7012 to give people 6, 9, 12 months to implement the new parts of Rev 3 over and above 171 Rev 2? You know, how, how will the syncing process work between the CMMC final rule and 171 Rev 3. Uh, to this person's question, implementation of Rev 3 is going to be driven by the wording of DFAR 7012 and less by uh, what the wording of the CMMC program happens to be because the CMMC program is following the requirement to implement 171 requirements pursuant to DFARS 7012. So that revision cycle does not affect the rule. You can see this even more because we know that the final CMMC rule was submitted to OIRA back in July for their final regulatory review after two years of development. And the 800 revision three cycle had started basically when the rule was already done, when the text of the rule was pretty much finished and being submitted, then the revision cycle for 171 uh, on the NIST side began. So they are, they are independent variables to one another, which makes it a huge mess. You know, I guess to the to the question of, you know, leadership is confused and hence they have a lot of hesitation. You know, my my sort of go to thing whenever that comes up is when people express hesitation about CMMC, whether they've confused that with the requirements or not. My question is, what part of the rulemaking process makes you come to the conclusion that CMMC is not a thing? Because inevitably people have various reasons, which are all, you know, of varying levels of validity, why they think that CMMC maybe isn't happening or taking longer or this or that. And I always ask them, when you look at the rulemaking process, what makes you think that? And almost always they haven't looked at the rulemaking process. It's very poorly understood. It's very opaque. And so they go, well, I don't know. I'm like, well, here's how the rulemaking process works. Here's the sequence of events. Here's where we are on the timeline. Do you still think that it's not happening? So it's maybe a little less to do with the revision cycle and a little more to do with rulemaking. Luckily, like we said, we should have the rule out soon, so we won't have to try to 
continue coming up with all these fantastical rulemaking theories, we'll have it in black and white. So I got a question for you, bud. I want you to answer it quickly. Like just, I, I hate to have to preface the questions with that, but um, now like seriously, um, I will be sadder than a Washington commanders fan if blank happens or blank does not happen when the revision of Nissan 171 is released. Something I will, that include. I will be more sad than a Washington Commanders fan when 171 Rev 3 is released. If if NIST gets goofy with their control categorization in 853, if they jack around with. NFO controls, if they get rid of NFO controls and come up with some goofy new thing, right? Like the, the way that you should categorize those controls is, are they relevant to protecting CUI or not? Period. If they're relevant yep. to protecting CUI, they go in 171 and you format them as closely as possible. And that's it. There's no friends. extras. There's no, there's no extras. There's no there's added no, layers of, yeah. There's no asterisks. There's no assumptions. There's no formatting obfuscation. Yep. There's no stylistic changes. There's no conjunctions. There's no, stop it. There's none of that. Just take the relevant parts of 853, put it in a separate document, call it 171 Rev 3, and then we can all get on with our lives instead of having to explain, well, what about this? And did you know that there's actually this assumption and blah, 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 because then people don't have to go back to 853 to get the extra information and context. It's just there. The relevant parts are there. There's none of this yeah. back and forth. So I will be a sad, sad commanders fan. If they, uh, if they waffle on this attempt with the initial draft to just make it as clear as possible, this is the part that's relevant to protecting CUI. The rest is not end of story. That, that's what I would say. Okay. And I you? am more nervous than a Chargers fan with a fourth quarter lead. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. I'm more nervous that what's going to happen is, is that we are going to um, spend so much time and get so much hope up thinking that this is going to be the end all be all that people are going to overlook that this is a gradual process to get this back to where we want it to be, right? The, yeah. form, the format of 53. And I, I think that um, I will be super duper, duper sad um, if the ODPs are like drastically reduced and, and we get to the point where things yeah. are now back to the more open-ended statements and, and things aren't as controlled. That's just yeah. my personal opinion. I think that they're needed. I think that they're beneficial if they're done right. And if well, they're not done correctly, and but it's out in this purview. If yeah. they're not done correctly, it, it, it is. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of stuff that we need to see whenever it comes out. I think it'll be a matter of days at this point, probably before the middle of November, because of the potential shutdown. One thing that we can all be happy about, Jason, we have crossed the four thousand subscriber count on YouTube. Congratulations, everybody! Yay, yay, yay. We'll we'll edit in applause in the background afterwards. But it means a lot. I, we've more than doubled our number of YouTube subscribers in the last year of doing this podcast. So all the likes, all the subscribes, all the bell notifications, all the comments, all the, comments, all yeah, the reviews, the comments are great. It, all, it all helps. We check it all out. Uh, we work really hard to try and bring you relevant information in a, in a, uh, a consumable way. So if you have feedback, if you got reviews, you got questions, you got comments, criticisms, put it in the comments, let us know, tell your friends and uh, make sure you like and subscribe. See you next week. See you.